I'm sort of the opening band, I guess, um, because we have some very famous people speaking after me. So I'm sort of still a little new to the field, but I'm excited to be sharing my work with you today. I want to thank Linda Evans, Helen Perkins, uh, Emily Henderson, and Francois Schmidt for the opportunity and the assistance in helping me get here today and, and to give this presentation. As she mentioned, I was out in Belmas, which is, I was in Wilkefield Park, outside of Reading, and this was for the British Educational Leadership Management Administration Society's annual conference, where I did receive the, uh, the Paper of the Year Award for the, this paper that I'm going to be presenting today. Um, and I also would like to thank Tony Bush, who is the editor of EMAL, and all of his assistance in helping me to increase what I think is not such a bad project and a pretty good paper. And he really helped me with the, the sophistication of that. Um, so, without further ado, um, I do want to just warn you, I do use the word administration, and that's a very American word we, that refers to the individuals who are in management positions in, the, in the, the university, in the hierarchy of the institution. So I know I don't think that that's a very, that's a UK word. Um, I think you use leader and manager and these types of words. So I will be using them interchangeably. So an administrator is someone like a vice president of student affairs or something like that. Okay, so here's what to expect. First, I thought I'd start off and just tell you a little bit about myself since I have 45 minutes, which is a lot. And then I would give you some background on the study. The background would include some contextual issues around higher education and gender in Africa, and particularly women's leadership in higher education institutions. And sort of frame some of those, those issues that women experience as they enter into the uh, academy. I also talk a little bit about some of the theoretical lenses I used, ways of looking at the data, thinking about the project, the things that provided this a conceptual foundation for my work. Um, and then hopefully start to get talking about this idea I have about the new narrative. We focus so much on talking about women and the problems and the obstacles that we have instead of focusing on sometimes our successes and our opportunities. So that's really what this paper is about. I'll cover my methods. I won't belabor them. I'll talk about data collection and data analysis. No one really cares about that overly much, but I do want to sort of share that with you uh, because I think it was important to the way the project evolved. And then what were those findings? What were those things that were important uh, to my work? And then is there an opportunity for theory generation? And then talk about some of the, the current stuff I'm doing and the comparative work I'm doing with graduate students. So does that sound good? I'm going to go ahead and get started. Um, <clears throat> a little bit about me. I am a professor at Rowan University in New Jersey. It's on the East Coast, on uh, the Mid-Atlantic area, and um, it is a public university of about 15,000 students. We have two medical schools. We're only one, two, one of two institutions in the entire country that have two medical schools. That means we have an allopathic, which is a traditional medical school, and an osteopathic, which is a DO. So we have an MD and a DO program which is really exciting for us. And we serve the area of Camden and Philadelphia and a lot of the um, sort of uh, economically disadvantaged in the region. Um, also, uh, I teach research courses mostly. That's why I get kind of jazzed about talking about research and research methods, even though I know it can be boring to others. Um, so I, like I said, I'll try not to belabor that. Um, but I do teach mostly research methods in an EDD doctoral program. And that's an EDD is an education doctorate. So it's sort of the the, uh, the evil twin, if you will, of um, PhD programs in the United States. And I advise currently about 17 doctoral students um, in their dissertation. So it's a, it's a big program and it's a lot of work, as you can imagine. I also coordinate the Women and Gender Studies program, which is uh, a 
um, a concentration at the university. Um, it's about an 18 credit program for undergraduates, so I do get a little inter interaction with the youngins at the institution. And I also am the coordinator of the brand new PhD program in education that's just getting started this year at the university. I do research on higher education in Sub-Saharan Africa, mostly around universities and how they recover from war. So mostly looking at universities in post-conflict situations and specifically looking at how they participate in the peace building process in countries that are recovering from war and that are fragile. So this is sort of how this project got started. Um, I work a lot with the Association of African Universities, which is sort of the preeminent organization on the continent that brings all the universities together um, and provides training opportunities, conferences, uh, and, and these sorts of things. It really gets academics and administrators working together towards bettering the university. And um, I go to a lot of their conferences. I work with them a great deal. And I've read a lot of the work that's come out of them and also out of uh, scholars around the obstacles to women as they enter into higher education and the problems they experience. Um, and as a result, of course, there are very few women in higher education administration and management as a result of these obstacles that they experience. However, I observed at the conferences that there were women there, and there were women in leadership positions and leadership roles on campus and in African university, uh, uh, universities. So I thought, well, that's an important story to be told. It's time to tell a story about the women who made it. And that's what this story is about today, is about those women who made it. And, and the challenges they experienced, but the ways that they, they've transformed their own sort of gender expectations and gender roles to help them to be successful in this highly gendered context. So um, Burton Clark talks about the organizational saga of higher education, of universities, and how they were made up of myths and visions and ethos and values. Well, those values tend to be very male-focused values, very ones that, that um, support the, men, the men's focus within an organization. And so these, uh, these, this focus tends to construct and both regulate Morley, who is here today, who I cite um, extensively in my work, Louise Morley, constructs and regulates these women's experiences when they enter into the academy and into higher education. And as a result, they tend to be relegated to more informal and invisible work on campus. So we're looking at women who typically get into positions in institutional maintenance or interpersonal services, like for example in the United States, uh, student affairs. Those types of places where women, we find they're them congregated the most as a result of these, these ethos on campus that it definitely uh, promotes the male, men's vision of what higher education should be like. In addition, in Africa, of course, women are dealing with the pre-existing cultural relationships that also construct their identities in their lives. And also, and in addition to that, and then of course, we have the gender-based violence that so many women experience, where young women are expected to pay sexual favors in order to get their grades or to get their transcripts. So they're constantly having to confront not only this organization that is so gendered in its very nature and its very structure and practices, but also those cultural relationships that then put women in a more inferior position as well as some of those gender-based um, oppression around violence that they have to uh, uh, deal with. And as a result, of course, women don't usually contest that script. Um, they can't. Um, it's, they're, they're barred from entry to quality experiences. But there are some women who do make it. Um, but unfortunately, when they do make it, they're not always described as leaders. They're not always described as individuals who have power and influence within the organization. And Mava Keller writes about the women being the donkeys of the university, and her work is focused on South Africa. 
And this is really about their having these roles, having important responsibilities and functions on campus, but not having the accompanying respect and authority that should come with those roles, that if a man were filling it, would automatically get. Um, and of course, then, there is also this gender division of labor. And I talked earlier about roles of institutional maintenance and interpersonal services that we tend to find women. And of course, that hegemonic vision of leadership, that agentic approach to leadership, um, that's hostile to women's lives and women's identities. Um, Lynch is talking a lot these days about this idea of the careless manager. This is an individual at the university who can be available to the university and its needs 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Well, that's hostile to women who have families, who have expectations outside of the work environment. And I love the study that Lindau did with a bunch of women across Africa. I think it was a Carnegie project. And she was talking to one woman who was trying to get on this committee, I think, in a, a university in Nigeria. And she said, uh, the woman was like, they wouldn't let me be on the committee. And she was like, well, why? She goes, I, I overheard colleagues saying, don't appoint her to this committee because she'll be asking you for permission to take her children to the hospital. And so the social expectation that women are supposed to be mothers, that are supposed to have these values commensurate with family, um, that is very traditional in this, in this context, also then conflicts with their ability, and they're punished for it, to be leaders within their organizations. So they're supposed to be a mother, but then they're punished for their mother, being a mother um, in this context. And they're increasingly a movement towards activity that improves the quantity of women in higher education. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean the quality for women's experiences in higher education. We see the Association of African Universities doing a great deal of work in leadership training and policy development around gender mainstreaming in the curriculum and policies on campus that promote women. However, as Morley writes, um, there are swaths of activities, processes, statistics and attitudes within higher education and society that defy the mediation of gender mainstreaming. Um, and that there really should be a call for shifting the paradigm of patriarchy in higher education in order to make a better experience for women in the academy. And I feel like that sort of was the clarion call for the work that I've done today. How can we take these positive experiences that women are having and start changing the narrative around that paradigm of patriarchy and the quality of women's experiences in higher education? But before I can do that, it's important that I frame this concept of gender for you a little bit. And I'm very much looking through Butler and her, her work on gender performance here. And Butler theorized that gender is not a state of being, um, but a series of acts that produces beliefs about gender identity. Um, and so this includes things like stylization of the body. I'm, I'm wearing a dress today. That's something I very rarely do. But I'm stylizing my gender identity right now by wearing this dress. Um, and there's other ways that we also perform our gender. Uh, for example, uh, an author writes, there's a great study about Nigerian women in higher education and the ways that they act at their gender, the way they do their genders, through being feminine, um, nurturing, giving deference to men and the transmittal of these values then to the next generation. Lester talks about, and of course this then creates expectations of women that will perform in this manner consistently and it is enforced. Lester talks about doing gender in the academy. She says women are often relegated to the informal mom roles on campus or the glue work such as note taking and organizing events on campus. Um, this is also what Patricia Hill Collins refers to as mammy work. Um, and this is enforced by students, by colleagues, by administrators. 
Um, and if you, in fact, don't perform in line with that expectation, then your credibility might is possibly threatened within the organization. And you have limited agency. Um, and gender, unfortunately, is not intrinsic, right? It's not intrinsic, but it's constructed. And it's constructed by our interactions with our colleagues, our students, and other fac and administrators on campus. But, and then further, of course, it's complicated by this concept of culture. Um, in Sub-Saharan Africa, gender is burdened by history, um, coloniza colonization, Western religion, and traditional practices that socialize acts uh, related to gender. Um, and the, but Chalisa and Nitsani say that also that gender can be a site of resistance for women as well. And I also looked at this through intersectionality, and it's funny because Victoria, when I went to a presentation of hers recently, she also used this idea. And it's very appropriate. I mean, it's a, a way of thinking about how different forms of our identity intersect and they interact with one another. And according to Collins, Patricia Hill Collins, who's sort of wrote the book on black feminist thought, um, suggested that these intersections create complex, complex experiences for women, um, and typically what she refers to as inequality regimes. Um, that this is, of course, that it assumes that gender is in a conflicted affair, um, um, that it assumes that the conf conflict that women experience is one of marginalization, typically. Um, that, of course, this isn't intentionally produced, but it's a consequence of one burden interacting with pre-existing vulnerabilities. And these vulnerabilities and structure, these intersection structures women's opportunities and their interactions, and even their social locations within the world. And of course, this then follows them into the workplace. So when we typically talk about intersectionality, we're typically talking in the United States about race and gender and class, but this also can include things like sexuality, ethnicity. Um, I have a student right now who's looking at the issue of tribals, tribal identification, and gender. Now, there's a critique of this, too, um, that this is a very Western perspective. Um, and how does this possibly apply in a context that is you know, so wholly different? It has different cultural values, different norms, different social expectations. And, and Mama talks about this. There's this, this troubled um, that this feminist perspective is troubled by the conceptions of, of identity in a post-colonial Africa. And also, from my perspective, it further furthers this uh, victimization narrative that is very much inherent to the, the, the literature on higher education and on women in Africa. Um, and it's a common trope we see in African studies. It's what Roe refers to as the accept, accept Africa narrative. Um, the focus is then on obstacles that women experience and how these gendered and relation, uh, racialized processes within organizations victimize them, and just continues to, con uh, to contribute to this othering that we see in the literature around women. My goal, then, of course, is to look at intersections as they create opportunities for women. Now, that's not to say that these obstacles are not real, and that these experiences that women have are not difficult and challenging, and that we should be doing scholarship on this to understand how to overcome them. But I didn't want to contribute my voice to that. I wanted to contribute my voice instead to these women who've made it, these successes. And so this story is about that, about these intersections creating opportunities for women. Um, I always mess, I, you know, African names are tough, so here's one that I'm going to struggle with. And Nameka argues for going beyond a historization of the intersection that limits us to questions of origins, genealogy, and provenance, to focus more on the history of now, 
the moment of, uh, of action that captures both being and becoming and ontology and evolution. And I, that really inspires me, this idea of the history of now. And this stance is really reflective of a movement towards positive paradigms about women. And, and there's constructive intersections that, uh, around women's identities that help them to be successful. So this is just sort of um, a diagram of what my, my study is about today. It's about these intersections that women experience their social, around their social identity, their professional identity, and their personal identities, and how these identities help them to be successful in a gender framework around, that is, has cultural implications, religious implications, and institutional ones. So I was guided by this question. Um, how do women within higher education, administration, management, and leadership um, in Africa describe their life and career paths in light of this heuristic framework of lived space, time, body, and human relations? And this is really born out of phenomenology. Um, it's particularly existential phenomenology, which is, I use von Manen, but he was inspired by Habermas and Husserl, who write about these life worlds that we all have and that they create this way, this heuristic for exploring into women's lives. And that's, that, that's of course, what I used here. So our life world, the way I address them in the interviews and my interactions with these women, gave attention to context, which is space, you know, these con contextual factors that these women were experiencing. Um, their career trajectory through this idea of time and these gendered acts which captured the body and then their, their social and professional commitments, which captures human relations. So I asked the women to reflect on their career progression, to describe their lives outside of work, to explain how they negotiate their various commitments, and then to describe their experiences as women. <clears throat> I used interviews with a, with a hermeneutic thrust, which was oriented towards sense-making and interpreting the notions driving this conversation, which were careers, their career and gender. On my analysis, I engaged through selective reading. Um, that includes isolating thematic statements and then translating data into abstractions, um, which are represented through th as themes through this uh, presentation. The final product was a descriptive phenomenological account that included career, identity, gender work. And, there, and it's all con I, I present it together because there are striking similarities between these women, despite the fact that they came from all over different places in the continent. And of course, I have to always, as a researcher, qualitative researcher must do, we have to engage in reflexivity, looking at ourselves, looking at others, making sense of their world, and doing so in a way that helps us to keep our, our theoretical suppositions and our beliefs and assumptions in abeyance as we engage in analysis. So here are the five women who were so generous uh, with their time. I spoke with a woman from Madagascar who was a vice president of international relations. That's a position women don't awfully, often fulfill, even in the United States. A woman from Ghana, who was the Dean of Entrepreneurship, which we know is a typically very male-dominated field. Uh, Anadiwa from Zimbabwe, who was a pro-vice chancellor of academic affairs, again, something heavily dominated by men from the sciences. Uh, Madiwa, also from Zimbabwe, who was a vice president of research and scholarship and Adiaba from Nigeria, who was a vice chancellor of a university. She ran a major public institution. But I think it's important that this research does not tell the tale of these women's lives in totality. 
My position, of course, as a white middle-class woman from the United States, as a professor, naturally can distort this narrative. And I realize that there is a tension between my participants' realities and, of course, my representation of their reality. And I know that. And we talk a lot about, and I've heard this said recently, you know, don't do, you know, not about us without us. And I thought that that was a really important point. So I work a lot with the Association of African Universities as a result, and, and often work with Pascal Hoba there, Dr. Hoba, who we do, do research projects together a lot. So he kind of gives me that, tries to balance my outsider perspective. So I'm doing both IMIC and EDIC work. Um, I can't claim, as a result, of course, to speak for Africans or African women, and I wouldn't even want to. Um, but instead, my hope here is to bring a constructive attention to these women's experiences. Um, in Sub-Saharan Afri Africa higher education and elucidating these sort of identity intersections and gender acts in the service of their advancement. Um, and finally, of course, while these women have important jobs and responsibilities within the university, this work really prompted insight into this more informal work, the gendered work that they do on campus in addition to their formal jobs. So first I want to start talking about this idea of intersecting trajectories that these women had. And I just bring up two, three here, which is faith, vocation, and agency. But the women also identified family as being really important to their trajectory. There were several consistent aspects. These are consistent across all of the participants. Each described key mechanisms and their context that enabled their accomplishment. Again, this was faith, family, education, or vocation, and agency. And each construct, interestingly, held dual purposes. For example, women were educators, but were also inspired by educational professionals to become leaders. So here we have um, Madiwa from Zimbabwe saying, you know, she had a teacher who taught her, and she was very progressive and inspired her to take on more increasing leadership roles. Faith and agency were also key to women's identities and elements of their success. And it's very interesting to me um, to talk about this. And this is, again, some place where my reflexivity is really important. I'm neither a mo mother nor am I religious. So to be able to try to capture these issues that these women talk a, a lot about, it was um, challenging for me at times because I, you know, I couldn't see myself in their narrative. And I think perhaps that also made this a little more objective for me at times as well. Um, but anyway, so faith and agency were key. Their career success, they, uh, many of them felt, was entirely contingent upon this powerful sense of personal agency. And agency was really the process by which women acted and achieved their desired outcomes. Um, this attribute enabled them to overcome obstacles uh, that, that um, gender created for them. So culture and gender were shaped, shaped their opportunities, but hard work and competence allowed them to defy it. So this is what Ansa says from Zimbabwe. I don't shout all the time to say we're equal, but I defy this culture by the effort that I've made. Faith was also a powerful support, and one that was kind of contradictory and interesting, which I'll talk about here in a second. Uh, personal and that each woman had a personal and professional commitment to Christianity, each one of them. One was a volunteer for a church, another one was a, a couple of them considered themselves pastors and ministers. And it was interesting because they would say things like, I am where I'm at by divine appointment. I couldn't have been here without God. Abina says, God made a way for me. No, I'm sorry, this isn't Abina. This is Adiaba from Nigeria. God made a way for me and I got it. That's how she, she said that. That's how she got the vice chancellor position. It was because God helped her to get it. And so they, faith really served as a framework um, for their success. Uh, and there was reasoning. Faith provided the reasoning and the support they needed for their success. 
is an interesting contradiction, though, for me. Um, and it's not something that came up in our narratives, nor something that I write about in the paper, but that there's a contradiction between faith and agency. Uh, there's, you know, a certain amount of fatalism associated with faith. You know, I am where I am because God wanted it. You know, it doesn't really have much to do with me and my personal wants. But then there's this agency to overcome these gendered constructions, like, I got here by the effort that I made. And so that was always an interesting contradiction that was sort of, it like sort of underlined the, uh, all of our conversations that I didn't explore very much, but, and I wish I had in retrospect. Also, of course, there were these intersecting identities, you know, there were these formal roles all the women talked about that they had in the workplace, you know, they wrote policy, they interacted with colleagues, they provided direction for the institution, but also there were these informal roles that women knew that was expected for them to fulfill, and that was being a mother and a role model. And all of these often overlapped with their personal identities, which they considered to actually to be rewarding even though it came with additional work expectations. So being a mother at work, in addition to being a leader at work. Um, and they were expected to provide motherly support to their colleagues, to faculty and students. Each woman had children, and they described motherhood as being a deeply ingrained part of their identity. And the expectation of the mom role really helped them, from their perspective, to influence their colleagues and in the, in the direction of the organization. So here, um, Adiaba says, they expect me to be a model, a role model. And as a matter of fact, my students come to me and they look to me as being a mother. Um, Abina says, she had a colleague come to her and say, someone, uh, not a colleague, but someone who worked for her. She was the dean, this was a faculty member at the institution, and said, um, Madam, it looks like everyone calls you Ma or Mommy or Mom. Can I call you that too? I mean, can you imagine someone coming to you at work and asking you to call you Mom? I'd be like, what? Um, and then... I know, do you get that? Oh, oh my goodness. Well, that's part of the problem, right? Is then, of course, you're censured if you don't do that. Um, most of my students tend to be older than me, so I think that that's why I don't get that so much. But I, I, I um, so, and then finally, we have Medewa here who says, they think I'm supposed to be out there. I should be a role model for all the female students around me. So that's, a, that's extra work, right? That's more in addition to their formal expectations at work. Adiaba says that this expectation challenged often her resolve to hold up, hold up policy, uphold policy at the institution. That students and, and faculty expected leniency or partiality because she was a woman in her role as the vice chancellor. She says, the thing is that they would not ask my predecessor to do those things that they ask of me. So I have to uphold my principles. I have to stay resolved. Women consistently noted that they projected obligations that created intersections between personal gender acts, like being a mom, and professional identity, like being a VC, or a VP, or a dean. And these intersections, while challenging, they thought enabled their service to the campus in a much more holistic manner, instead of as a gender narrative typically implies as disenfranchising them from the university, or marginalizing them, or obviating their goals. The the, um, when I submitted this article for publication, uh, the journal, I, I originally called this gender as a job. And they didn't like that. They said, no, it's not really what you're describing. Can you come up with something else? And I came up with gendered work. Oh, yes, that's very exciting. But really, I feel like what these women described was gender as a job, that that was a job that they did on top of their formal jobs. 
So Adi Abba, um, I'm sorry, here we go. Um, each conversation elicited a sense that being a woman required some sort of specialized effort and that it was not unlike work. Um, and there, of course, there were also social practices within the African context that also prescribed certain ways of being, certain activities, and certain behaviors. Uh, for example, Adiaba describes being punished because of her work as the VC conflicted with the work of, a being, of being a woman. So she says here, it's not a woman's job being a vice chancellor, and things like that. People would say that. And even after the interview and the appointment, my husband was abducted to keep her from taking the job. Her husband was abducted. And that was interesting. And she says, after two, and I was like, oh my God, that's crazy. And she said, after two weeks, they brought him back. He'd gotten very skinny, but it was fine. And she sort of treated it as if that was not to be unexpected, which was fascinating to me. And a shocking consequence of taking up a job that wasn't a woman's job. Um, and the women also, unfortunately, reinforced these norms often. Abina notes um, having, uh, having her job and also a college counselor's job. So she says, and the students are able to come, even though we have counselors in the school, people who are supposed to help them, who get paid to do that for a living. Um, they come to you with some personal problems because you are a mother. And she says, it makes me feel good to do that. So she's reinforcing the norm, the expectation. And then, of course, we had women enforcing the norms as well. Ansa, who was from uh, Madagascar, says um, she spoke of being proper, often, um, and that it was something that all women must perform. You know, proper in the way that you dress, in the way that you behave, that you carry yourselves appropriately. She even says, I read it in the Bible somewhere. A woman is in some way a setting or decoration in her home, and that she must take care of herself. And she wasn't just talking about herself, she was talking about all women. And that's how she saw the women in her workplace. She said she gave advice to her colleagues about the way that they should, her female colleagues, about the way that they should dress, the things that they should do. The women in this study described their gender as requiring an awareness of additional effort, additional expectations, and the need to meet those expectations in both their appearance and in their behavior. But they also defied these norms, which created conflict for them. Um, I was definitely left with a sense that it was hard work, both being a woman, performing as a woman, and then also being a leader within these contexts. And as Adiaba said, when I thought this encapsulated it perfectly, it's exerting. If I ever come back from reincarnation, I want to be a man. <laughs> so I interpret this as both these women performing and defying gender in some ways. The women in the study described their gender as requiring, and oh, sorry, gosh, I'm getting ahead of myself. Not one woman, rather, not one woman addressed gender directly. Not one. It was always in terms of some act that they talked about being a woman. That it was hard work, and gender wouldn't be a problem. If you work hard, gender's not an issue. Act like a mom, and your colleagues will trust you. Perform gender and fulfill gender expectations. That's what you're supposed to do. Yet, by doing this, the women thought that this was also a source of agency and influence for them within their organizations. This agency and influence related to gender performance and conflicts with many accounts that women, oh, sorry, rather, this is conflicting with many accounts that motherhood and perceptions of it, in fact, impede women's ability to be successful within organizations. So if we think back to that Lindau quote, where the women said, I, I couldn't get in that position because people thought I would be asking to take my kids to the hospital. 
Um, so that was preventing and impeding a woman from being successful within her organization. Yet these women say, no, in fact, being a mom, be acting motherly, and it, it, it uh, expanded my circle of influence, my sphere of influence within the organization. Women also legitimized gender beliefs through their replication, but they also defied them through their advancement. So the act of gender is then disrupted. It creates what uh, Butler refers to as gender transformation. The, the performance of gender is then altered by their agency, their hard work, their competence, their diligence. And despite the necessity of performing gender and work and social life, faith, family, and education naturalize gender for them in the university, disrupting sentiments that women really don't belong there. They had these multiple self-images that created these sites of resistance that Chalisa talks about from to gender-based oppression within their organization. And for them, it established a sense of belonging within um, gendered organizations. So these intersections enabled enactment and defiance for them. As women brought to bear their different ways of knowing about the university and its stakeholders, when a, when a woman performs both conditions of enactment and defiance, then they often can be considered what uh, Butler talks about, the outsider within. This is an organizational identity that's marked by both the privilege to be in the organization, which is, you know, as we know, uh, dominated by men, but then also shaped by things like race, class, gender, and which can sort of make, then makes women interlopers within this organization as well. So it's a sort of belonging and not belonging um, within these organizations. So women do not cease to perform gender, but their presence, I think, initiates some uh, in these domin dominated, male-dominated positions, really starts to raise some tough questions about the appropriateness um, of the continued marginalization of women in higher education. That women's status as outsiders within hopefully may start to change and stimulate some changes in the way that we think about leadership, because it certainly was within these contexts. Um, Oh, well, don't worry, I'm almost done. Awesome, thank you. Um, so this was a small study. It was five folks, uh, five women who gave me their time very generous, generously to me. And, but I think that there's some, some ways here that we can start thinking about understanding women's uh, lives theoretically in this context. Um, I think uh, outsider within status, uh, status, coupled with this intersection between identity and performance, may create a threshold within women's lives that allows them to be acknowledged by others as both in acting being a woman and being a professional in higher education. Now, I feel like this is complicated and troubled by this idea of neoliberal carelessness that Lynch is talking about a lot these days, um, and I think some of her Grummel former graduate students are talking about, um, that how can you be an outsider within, be a mom in the organization when you're supposed to be there 24 hours a day, seven days a week? That's what the carelessness concept intimates, is that you don't have other expectations. So is that then going to punish these women for being motherly and mom-like within their jobs? I don't know, but in Sub-Saharan Africa, this neoliberal catechism uh, um, that we see all of the time there, are, it's burgeoning increasingly at institutions because of um, the results of you know, uh, the influence of GATS and WTO, these move towards performance-oriented organizations and away from development, uh, developmentally focused organizations. Is that going to then impact women's ability to continue to rise um, in the organization? I feel like this carelessness concept troubles that. But I don't know. I think that remains to be seen. <clears throat> Finally, here's some of the work that I'm, 
I'm getting ready to, um, that I'm doing and doing with some of my graduate students. Um, one right now, I'm working with a student looking at how carelessness and those sort of socio-historical and cultural antecedents, like tribal affiliation, how they shape women's leadership. So um, my student just completed work in South Africa, um, and she did work here in the United States, and we're publishing a uh, paper together, how women change hats and capes within their organization, and they con continually talked about that in these interviews, that I know when I go into this meeting, I have to put this hat on, and when I have to go into this meeting, I have to put this cape on. And I thought that was very interesting, so we're sort of looking at it through the metaphor of like a wardrobe that women have to wear within organizations in order to be successful. Um, and so, and how those, that wardrobe is complicated by their tribal affiliations and their expectations of gender. I'm also interested in looking at gender violence in context, uh, in conflict-affected higher education, uh, particularly in public universities. Most of all of my work takes place in public institutions. And, and really looking at how faculty and staff and students experience this, but then also how do they try to change the institution so that it is more female-friendly. And so that's some of the work that I'm looking to, um, towards in the future. And that's, that's what I have for you today. So thank you so very much for having me. And I look forward to talking to you a little bit more about this and any questions that you might have. Thank you.